0: The ocean makes up more than 70% of the Earth's surface. And below the waves are some of the most fascinating and important species. But there's still a lot we don't know about what lives in the sea.
1: I love how when you look out at the ocean's surface, you do not necessarily know what is right below you. And there have been a few times where I've plopped into the water and been like, whoa! I can't believe this was, like, right, right down here under the boat.
0: Woo! This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon. In this episode, we visit the seas around the South Pacific island of Morea. Take a look at a map of the world. And the Pacific Ocean looks like a vast blue expanse with little more than seawater all the way from California to Australia. But zoom into the middle of this vast sea, and you'll find a tiny speck of land, the island of Morea. It's one of more than 120 islands that belong to French Polynesia. Some of the islands near Morea include Tahiti and Bora Bora, all of which are part of an archipelago within French Polynesia known as the Society Islands. Morea is a volcanic island with steep mountains that reach nearly 4,000 feet, covered in dense green rainforest. Surrounding the island is a lagoon formed by a ring of coral reefs. Those reefs are what brings marine ecologist Dr. Adrian Correa my colleague at Rice University all the way to this remote South Pacific island. I caught up with Adrian during a field expedition to the Richard Gump Research Station, located at the water's edge near the mouth of Cook's Bay. Hey Adrian.
1: Hey Scott. How's it going?
0: I'm so glad to get to talk with you while you're actually in Marea. This is so cool. Yeah. So you're in Murray right now and doing field work. And I'm wondering, you know, I've never been to Murray. I've seen pictures. I, I, it seems like it's a beautiful place. Can you kind of paint a picture for us? like, you know what is it what does it look like there? Like where are you right now?
1: Right now, I am in the Richard Gump Research Station on the coast. so you can see if I look out the window, you can see the water and some water tables, which are which is like a research area with flow through seawater that you can put tanks and experimental organisms. And I can see some boats that we use to go out in the lagoon or onto the fore reef to do field observations or in situ manipulations. You have these amazing mountain profiles to look at and, you know, it rains and there's rainbows and it's just a very beautiful spot on Earth. But Inside here, it's like a regular office.
0: <laughs> Inside the building, yeah, yeah. So this is you're at a field research station. So this is a place that you know researchers or or students go to to study what what, what kinds of things do study. People study there. We'll talk about your work in a minute. But what are some of the general themes of the research there?
1: Well, I think people here at the research station are studying coral reef ecology. And evolution and also human uses and impacts on reefs, including some studies of how land-based uses like agriculture or growing livestock influence waterways that eventually make it out to the reefs.
0: So, you know, corals are something that I think a lot of people think about as like something that's beautiful that we might like to go and try to see if we're, you know, on a vacation, go snorkeling or scuba diving or something. But you know they're also really important right i mean why should why should people care about corals beyond just for their their beauty
1: well they are basically a quarter of the known diversity in the ocean lives on coral reefs so so that's an incredible amount yeah that's a lot of the world's diversity you know we don't and some artists and photographers have attempted to kind of capture some of this diversity for, for people to just see because a lot of it hides in cracks and crevices of the reef structure itself. And when you pull these organisms out, you know, talk about infinite inspiration for movie characters. Um, <laughs> people, people also look at different things that these organisms can do to get ideas for machinery and technologies that we use today. So, there are all sorts of wonderful, helpful things about these critters that we can use. But some of the biggest ways that reef help, reefs help us is by generating, making this really massive amount of limestone framework or structure that can be uplifted and become land eventually. You know, many people physically live on top of old, dead reef, and they also rely on that reef for food and/or ecotourism. And then the reef framework itself is really important for breaking waves, wave energy in those types of places. So, you know, places like Miami, Florida, and other coastal cities with lots of development on the shoreline have major problems if they start to lose their reef because shoreline erosion increases, et cetera. So, really, it's, you know, people's livelihoods, where people live. And unfortunately, you know, around the world, we're also starting to see climate refugees who literally many people who live on islands at this point are having to to leave the home that they've known because of sea level rise.
0: So we hear a lot in the news about corals being in danger. What's going on?
1: Well, I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, corals get discussed as a canary in the coal mine. So unfortunately, You know, we are seeing a huge amount of reef degradation over the last decades, and it is predicted to continue over the next decade. So we're losing lots of coral out there on reefs. And as we lose coral, we lose those reef structures, and we lose those homes for those many other fish and turtles and all kinds of other organisms. You know, and when I say we're losing a lot, that means, like, we've lost— 50% 50% of the Great Barrier Reef corals in the last 30 years. And over the next couple of decades, we are predicted to potentially have 70 to 90% of reefs around the world in their current state, which is already degraded from what they were previously, experience significant further degradation. And when when you have reefs bleaching repeatedly, you know, year after year or every couple of years, they're sick you know, and that costs them energetically. It's difficult, you know, just like when we get really sick, when we have a very significant illness, there can be a long recovery time and it can have subsequent impacts on, you know, how, how we are able to do things. And so what happens for reefs is between increasing temperatures due to climate change, plus in many places, overfishing of fishes that remove things that compete with and overgrow corals. So if you remove things like parrotfish that would graze on algae that otherwise overgrow corals, you start to have algae taking over a reef. And that combined with also nutrient pollution, which often comes from poor land management practices. So if you have a lot of fertilizer running into a reef or a lot of erosion coming off the land and dumping sediments onto the reef, uh, that can also kill corals. So we over the last decades we have really set up a situation where reefs are corals are dying uh, from sort of multiple causes of stress.
0: And the bleaching that you were talking about bleaching is when the the symbiotic microorganisms that live inside the coral leave, right? And these are these are a kind of algae. They're you, you say the name because I can't pronounce it very well.
1: Symbiodiniacea.
0: That's a good scrabble word. Symbiodiniacea. Yeah. So yes. those are the algae that live inside the tissue of the coral, right? And and what do they do for the coral?
1: They generate food by photosynthesizing, so they use energy from the sun to make sugars, and one of the things that's really cool about these algae is that they make all this sugar and then they dump up to 95% of the sugar that they make out into the tissues of the coral that they're living inside of. And so that sugar ends up going to the coral and allowing the coral to have enough energy to build these massive reef frameworks that we see from space. So when we start getting into trouble with reef framework not being produced anymore and all those harms that it causes to human societies living near near the ocean, a big part of that story is this this partnership between the coral and that little algae breaking apart.
0: And that's what you're in Morea now to study, right? To investigate one particular way that the algae can be associated with corals? So you've found that fish might be playing a role.
1: That's a big part of why we are interested in whether or not fish that eat corals can disperse those algae around a reef. Because as we are trying to think about how corals maybe can replenish their algae living in their tissues after they've been stressed, maybe one good source is these algae that, that fish have eaten by biting a coral. Amazingly, these algae, many of them can pass through the the fish's digestive tract and then get number twoed around the the reef. So So
0: the fish are pooping out these algae, basically.
1: They are pooping out these algae,
0: yes. Wow. And that can be helpful for the corals if they can pick up some of those beneficial algae.
1: Yeah. That's really what we are trying to to test for these stony corals that make— the big part of reefs right now. We've seen we've seen demonstrations that this can happen from other organisms. So like there are these anemone fish that bite anemones and we have seen that anemones that don't have algae can can acquire the algae from the feces of from the poop of an anemone fish. And we've seen even with these stony reef building corals for example that larvae from a stony reef coral species can get those algae from a giant clam fecal pellet. So if hmm. you had not thought about giant clam fecal pellets yet today... Not or, not,
0: not yet today.
1: <laughs> giant clam poop <laughs> pellets. So giant clams also harbor, they also host these Symbiodiniaceae algae, and they have that same kind of relationship that corals and those algae have. And giant clams release these poop pellets on the regular, and if you put some of those next to a coral larva that doesn't have any of its algae yet it can get those algae so it's like it's right there we can mm. we can see many examples that make us make us really think that probably we may find that fish eating stony corals can then pass those those algae to other stony corals but we need to we need to demonstrate that first
0: I just love this. Who would have thought that fish poop could be so important? <laughs> yeah.
1: It's opened up this entire world where basically now all I do is think about fish poop, and <laughs> algae, and and it's been really it's been really fun because as we broaden out and look at more fish species and more corals and algae and water and sediments, you know, sort of look at the whole ecosystem picture. For which algae is where and how the fish might move it around, it's, it's really changed the way we've thought about what some of the roles of these coral-eating fishes might be on a reef.
0: Yeah, I mean, you usually think of like parrotfish eating corals, and that's, you know, a bad thing for the corals. They're getting munched on, but I guess they might be doing a service by helping to, to spread these uh, beneficial algae. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon and I'm talking with my friend, coral biologist Dr. Adrian Correa. Coming up, Adrian explains why my vision of the beautiful life of a marine biologist working in the calm, clear waters of a sunny South Pacific island isn't necessarily that accurate. If you want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Listening to Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. I'm talking with my friend and colleague, Marine Biologist Dr. Adrienne Correa, during her field research expedition to the tropical island of Morea in French Polynesia. So I know a little bit about what it's like to, you know, put on snorkel gear and try to go underwater and, you know, look at corals or collect data. But can you give people a little bit of a sense for what what that takes? Because it's not something most people have experience with. Even if you've been scuba diving or snorkeling, you know, doing all that while also trying to be a scientist and collect data is is complicated. So can you kind of walk us through, like, if you're going out to collect data – you know, and you're scuba diving. Like, what what is that like? What's the prep that goes into that, and what are all the things you have to kind of keep track of?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest things is trying to be both optimistic and realistic, uh, <laughs> and some of your ability to do that just comes from trying things out and experience. So, essentially, because everything is harder to do underwater compared to on land, including communicating with your research buddies, your dive buddies, you want to talk about as much as possible before you actually get out doing your work. And so we almost like mime through our entire set of activities so that, you know, to the point of like, okay, we're going to get in the water. And then what are we going to do? We're going to put on gloves. So we need gloves in a bag inside our dive kit. And so and this then is happening gonna- like
0: like on the boat, like as you're like heading out there or on land before you go out?
1: Even before so that you're, okay. you're packing all of your stuff the night before. So we usually have, and a couple of the challenges that I think people often wouldn't recognize is that a lot of the things that we use to sample underwater float. And so, uh, like bags, paper. Tubes, a lot of things, gloves, everything floats essentially. So you—that's a are, problem
0: for you. Normally, we think of that as being a good thing when you're on the water, but in your case, you don't—you don't want it to float because it's going to float away, right?
1: Yeah, the last thing you want to do is have plastic floating away from you in the ocean, and then you know, then you're contributing to marine pollution. So right. basically, we like pre-label everything before we get in the water, and usually tie it to bags or other things that we're carrying. So. If you like organizing stuff and doing things in an organized way, this type of research is for you because being meticulous and having things really mapped out and pre-organized helps. And so, so typically when you go into the water, you know, when you see a picture of someone diving on a scuba diving magazine or, you know, someone who's just wearing their bathing suit and a, and a scuba kit, that is not realistic of scientific diving. You have stuff clipped and strapped all over you essentially and you're carrying around bags and you're you're kind of covered in in a camera and clipboards and bags and hammer and chisels or bone cutters (laughs) things like that
0: wow that's a lot to keep track of
1: yeah so the more you the more you practice the easier it gets but The other thing, I guess, is conditions. So sometimes it's really gorgeous underwater. There's not a lot of current or surge. The weather is good. And, you know, you can even get sunburned on your hands or parts sticking up from under your wetsuit at 30 feet. So sometimes conditions are gorgeous. But other times it's raining or there's a lot of surge pushing you around underwater. So sometimes if one of the things I did as a postdoc was uh, there were these fish exclusion cages that we put on the reef bottom temporarily to see what happens when you exclude fishes from eating algae that compete with corals. And a lot of stuff will start growing on those, we call them cages. And so you have to go out routinely and take a scrub brush and scrub the inside and the outside of the cage or otherwise it gets covered in living organisms and then there's no water flow and it ruins your experiment. And there are times, for instance, when the surge or the weather conditions are difficult enough so that you're literally hanging on the cage and like your whole body is like blowing one way and then blowing the other way. And you're trying to scrub this thing. And so sometimes data collection is very physical and somewhat comical (laughs) underwater. (laughs) Sometimes you get kind of beaten up a little bit. Yeah. You know, there's just a huge physicality to doing all of this.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: I think when people imagine a scientist or maybe a marine biologist, the, I feel like the trope is like someone on a boat in beautiful weather <laughs> with dolphins leaping around. But, you know, a lot of times it's in the rain or you're cold or you're lifting heavy stuff or you're getting bruised or banged up.
0: Yeah. Well, what about the good stuff? What's the, what's the best part of doing field work there? What's, what parts of it are really fun? What keeps you coming back?
1: Oh, well, I mean, everything else, (laughs) uh, basically the, you know, I am just, it is a, it is really a gift to, to devote my working life to something that fascinates me. I mean, I am willing because I am so fascinated about these questions and how things work. That fascination carries me through anything that's challenging and makes me want to do it. And it's beautiful on a reef, and you occasionally, you have the privilege of seeing amazing organisms and, and beautiful views. Another amazing thing is getting to interact with others. So I am lucky that I'm still trying to grow as a scientist and grow in my career and my work life, but I acutely remember being a student at all sorts of different stages and remember all the questions that you have about will you make it through school and can you make it into a career in science? And so it's it's really fulfilling and exciting also to see and be able to support other people on that journey.
0: This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon. When we come back, I'll ask Adrienne about her career journey and learn about what other interesting things she studied before corals. The Rice University Traveling Owls program offers exciting intellectual itineraries to destinations around the globe. Traveling Owls trips serve as a catalyst for lifelong learning and strengthen bonds between Rice University alumni and friends. You don't have to be a Rice alum to participate in Traveling Owls programs. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls to see a list of upcoming trips. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest today is my good friend Adrian Correa, whose research on the microorganisms inside corals has taken her to the South Pacific island of Morea. So, I've known you for a long time, but I don't think I ever heard about how you first got interested in science. Do you remember, like, how old were you when you first thought, like, I want to be a scientist? Or or did did you think that when you were young?
1: Um, I think that I... My family always enjoyed going outdoors. And so I had some, in terms of like particular snatches of things, I remember I remember going out with my mom and trying to find mushrooms with a mushroom guidebook hmm. and just being completely astonished at how goofy common names of mushrooms are. And, <laughs> yeah. and just realizing how much fungal diversity is out there and how tricky it can be to try to tell things apart. And I really like dichotomous keys. And then another thing is that I have an aunt and uncle who are botanists. And so I uh, just always thought that seemed like a really neat thing to do, science. And then additionally, I, I have always just thought the ocean is fascinating. I think because A, when you can see what is in the water, they are very extraordinary and different seeming creatures. And also I love how when you look out at the ocean surface, you do not necessarily know what is right below you. No. And there have been a few times where I've plopped into the water and been like, Whoa, I can't <laughs> believe this was like right right down here under the boat.
0: Like what? What did you see? So
1: both of those are amazing. Uh one of my very first scientific diving experiences was in the Florida Keys, and uh, the weather wasn't great. And I didn't have a lot of diving skills or anything at that point. But I have a a pretty super stomach, I don't tend to get seasick. And so I was like, the only person. (laughs) Yeah, I was the only (laughs) person remaining on the boat who was still ready to get in the water. So I went in to be somebody's dive buddy, and we plopped over the side. And there was this huge manta ray. Oh like wow. a spaceship i mean like it it was enormous right <laughs> below us and i had never my brain just was like scrolling through options. it when when you <laughs> are not expecting to come up on something that large uh it's at least for me it takes my brain it's like a scrolling through stuff like you see pictures on a on a one of those casino machines that you pull. What are those called? A slot machine. It yeah. It's like the slot machine where your brain is just like trying to call up like, what is this? And then, you know, after five seconds, you're like, okay, okay. It's a ray. Whoa, wow, This is so large. You just couldn't yeah. process
0: what it was because it was so yeah. big. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Okay. So you kind of had this interest in science, interest in the ocean. How did that Happened to lead you into this career? Like, was it a straightforward path for you? Didn't you study ants at one point? I study ants. You, you, you almost became an ant biologist, like I am.
1: Yeah, I think I had. I think sometimes, you know, as you're finding your path in science, there are so many cool questions out there, and I think that anybody who is pondering being a scientist, you know, there are many possible paths and many disciplines that they could get excited about. And some of it is the twists and turns of the particular opportunities you get. And some of it is the occasional just like figuring out you're not very good at something. For So for me, looking under a dissecting scope and dissecting out pitfall or trying to separate all of the insects in a pitfall trap, like I was really excited about those questions, but I was, I had trouble doing that. And I know you must be like...
0: It's tedious. Be, yeah. It's, yeah. It's not yeah. It's not always very much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I love I love ants and I think they are you in in Belize on our field course, you also have like totally opened up my eyes to further ant coolness.
0: <laughs> but there are no but, uh, but there are no ants in the ocean, sadly, as much as I've well, as I've searched.
1: Not not living ones, not for long. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess uh for me it was just I was really excited about squid or cephalopods in when I was an undergrad. And I also thought deep sea biology was really neat. Mm -hmm. The adaptations that organisms have to live in those extreme environments and hydrothermal vents and tube worms and Yeti crabs and all those things. And then I just happened to, in terms of coral reefs, I just, when I was doing my master's on ants, actually, the person who became my PhD advisor was also in the department. And so I learned about, I was like, oh, what's he doing? I like the ocean. And so that was the the moment where I started learning about this partnership between corals and their algae. And I just found that to be extremely fascinating.
0: So what's been the most exciting thing that's happened so far this field season?
1: Oh, Well, I think this field season for us in particular, we're, we're here on the first trip associated with new funding. And so we're, we're kind of out on a, out on a limb or out on a coral branch, if you will, um, trying a whole bunch of new things. And so I think the most exciting thing overall is just the amount of learning and reality checks that have been coming at rapid speed. So just, I guess, trying to keep up with that. Uh, And one thing that we did do on the side was go snorkeling, go on a snorkeling trip on our one afternoon off. We were able to snorkel with some humpback whales. So that was something I had never done before.
0: Oh, what was that like? Amazing. (laughs) It
1: was really (laughs) cool. It was out uh, past, out in open ocean, a humpback mom and her baby. And three times we had the opportunity to see them. And the baby was pretty playful. And it was just,
0: it was pretty incredible. That is incredible. Oh my gosh, what an experience. Yeah. Now you also, you texted me some photos at one point of of something that exciting that happened while you guys were there. Which ones? (laughs) 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 Sorry,
1: you have to tell me what they looked like.
0: Of, I believe it was coral spawning. Oh,
1: yes, that was very exciting. So coral spawning is basic, uh, is when, Corals and mass reproduce, and so there are two kinds of well, there are various different ways that corals can do it. The coral species that we're spawning here at this time release a bundle, these little pink balls that are egg and sperm bundles uh, and they float up to the surface of the water, and then the bundles start breaking apart, and the eggs and sperm separate, and then they all start fertilizing each other so. This was my first time getting to participate in anything relating to, related to spawning, and it was really interesting to see how researchers work with that process and the approaches that they have worked out to try to maximize fertilization success and survival, because you're basically trying to help corals go through these different life stages and eventually get to something that's a larvae that looks like a sesame seed And then eventually there are other phases, but eventually those larvae will start settling out on the bottom and make a single polyp, which looks like a hand that eventually splits and grows and divides and turns into what we would normally recognize as a coral colony. So it was very interesting to, to learn about that process and start trying to hook into that research wise. And I also learned a lot about how much Despite the fact that we know a fair amount about when certain coral species spawn and how they, they typically are, you can predict when they will spawn a number of days after the full moon in particular months for these corals that we're working with. Hmm. Uh, but even though, even though we know that predicted number of days, there's still a fair amount of, of variation for when different coral colonies actually spawn and how much they spawn etc. So it's like night after night after night of being ready to go and then maybe something happens maybe it doesn't it's a lot of it definitely ex- extends the work day.
0: Yeah, it sounds exciting though. I mean, what a natural like an amazing natural phenomenon to get to witness, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really neat. I uh it's very tiny. You know, in <laughs> uh the some corals release planula, which is sort of a bigger life stage than, than egg and sperm bundles. My eyesight, if you want to test your eyesight, <laughs> come, <laughs> come and do some spawning with broadcast spawners.
0: They're just that tiny, yeah. You're listening to Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. In our final segment, we'll find out about some simple things that we can all do, no matter where we live, that can help save corals in Morea and around the world. I love to travel and experience new places, and I've had the great pleasure of joining several rice-traveling owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad Expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm talking with my friend, coral biologist, Dr. Adrienne Correa, about her work on the essential relationships between microorganisms that live symbiotically with corals in Maria, which are being disrupted by human activity. So what can people who are listening do to help corals? Like, what can people do regardless of where they live if they want to help corals?
1: First, just recognizing that, that climate change is an, is an issue for corals and that we need like the the international panel on climate change, the IPCC committee, et cetera. That you know we're missing the window on limiting temperature increase to one point five degrees C. We really need to be united in taking significant action. Basically, every possible action at this point to try to turn things around from a climate change perspective. I think that is the absolute biggest thing that we can do to help reefs and other ecosystems. And so placing pressure, helping politicians understand that that is what we all want is critical and and supporting markets that, that are identifying and making alternative energy sources and products more mainstream and readily available would be useful. And then I think just in general, for someone in the United States, for example, just Thinking about our daily life and consumption, whether it's trying to ride a bike or walk when you can, to just like, I, one of the things I think about a lot is do I need all of this stuff? Can I find something with less packaging? We throw, and we've seen this in Belize, even in a, you know, UNESCO World Heritage Reef site far from shore, trash is getting significant amounts of trash get washed up on the beach. Like this, we use an insane amount of materials in our daily lives. And we have a very, I think because of the fast pace of of uh, city life, for example, there's a lot of disposable living and we just throw out a lot of stuff and it does end up out on reefs and in the environment.
0: I guess that's especially true for people who are living near corals.
1: I mean, people living near corals can drive forward initiatives that are that are very specific related to, you know, trying to, to make sure that waste disposal, you know, placing pressure or developing campaigns to try to take care of local sources of pollution or stress, you know. So, but I think that many of the things that individuals can do to try to help reefs, it doesn't matter if you live right next to a reef or if you live far away, you know. So, any runoff from land goes into waterways and then makes it to the ocean. So things that we do in the middle of a country, like using excessive amounts of fertilizer or pesticide, are going to make it out to the reef. And then additionally, you know, I think we need to vote and we need to let policymakers and managers know that we care about these issues and that they are a priority for us. So I think the biggest thing that you can do is
0: vote. Lastly, I just want to ask, why go all the way to Morea for your work? We have coral reefs closer to us in the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico, where I know you work as well. But what is it that keeps you going back to Morea, which is so far away in the middle of the Pacific Ocean?
1: Well, that's a great question. First, I want to acknowledge the people of French Polynesia and that this is their reef and their land and that they allow us to come and conduct this research here. And I think about that particularly, you know, when I biopsy a coral colony or or take a fish off the reef because i'm i'm using their resources so i want to acknowledge that one of the amazing things about getting to work here is that it's a relatively higher coral cover reef compared to some places that are readily accessible in the caribbean and so it's a more coral dominated habitat compared to some parts of the florida keys for example and then Another thing is that it's a, a shallow water reef where we can work. So Gulf of Mexico is a really cool system, but it's further offshore and starts much deeper. So it's a, there are different limitations for what you can do on a reef like that. Um, but another amazing part of getting to work here specifically is that the Gump station is the site of the Marea Coral Reef long term ecological research site, which mm-hmm. is The abbreviation is M-C-R-L-T-E-R, which is supported by the National Science Foundation or NSF for a whole community of researchers to come and study this reef to study, you know, sort of what processes are contributing to either resilience or changes in, in the reef ecosystem. And so by coming and working here, there's a whole network of researchers and expertise that we can plug into. There are a lot of long term data sets on coral cover, fish abundance, you know, fish species, algae, all sorts of things that we can use to contextualize the data that we might collect in any given study. And so that's extremely helpful some sometimes and really valuable.
0: So how does studying corals in one particular place like Morea, you know in in a lot of detail like you guys are doing help us to understand what's happening with corals worldwide?
1: Well, the coral species that are found in Morea are coral species, the the main ones that we are working on and these main groups of fish that we're working on to try to you know understand if coral eating fishes May be able to help like kind of provide a probiotic to stressed out corals. The groups of fish and the groups of corals that we're doing these experiments with are found all throughout the Pacific, and we're also doing some of this work in the in the Caribbean as well so we're we are picking one place to really understand the system and do our initial tests, but this is something that's broadly that can be broadly applicable to reefs around the world you know and one of the areas where there's a difficult mismatch at this point is the threats to reefs are very near-term and happening. You know, this reef de- degradation is happening very quickly. And so, you know, the timescales on which we would want to develop interventions to support reefs uh, or try to restore reefs are, are right now. We really need to be doing things right now. But many areas of research where we're trying to understand, you know, can we develop a reef probiotic that's either delivered by coral-eating fish or some other way? You know, those types of things, we can work quickly to try to, to try to find a solution, but then it doesn't stop there. You also have to find a way, once you've got a potential solution, to scale up to something that could be delivered over hundreds of kilometers of reef or through massive outplanting. And restoration, So it's very, you know, and then we also would need to, at the same time, stop the human-driven sources of reef decline or, you know, lessen those significantly. Or otherwise, we can spend a lot of time and energy trying to bri- provide these therapies to corals, but then we're just going to make them sick right away after and, and reef decline will likely continue.
0: Yeah. So— Clearly, corals are facing an uncertain future. So how do you stay optimistic?
1: Well, I think one thing I do is recognize that I don't understand everything about how all of these processes play out. Ecosystems and the earth are complex. A lot of times I am troubled by that uncertainty because I worry that it's more likely that Something we haven't anticipated will cause things to degrade more quickly rather than to be an escape hatch or a a way that things can survive. But I try to remember that I might not understand or be able to conceptualize how things will play out at really large scales. And then I think there are bright spots in terms of genetic material and places on Earth. And I hope that human society can change. I think this is a difficult time to look for coordinated human society response in terms of taking action on the timelines that we need to in order to to limit the amount of damage that we're going to have from something like climate change so that's hard you know to be completely honest i think some of it is trying to remember to to look at optimism points and not just pessimism points or concern points but i think also part of it is coping where I just can't think about it all the time. There's something called ecological grief, where you feel sadness or loss of environmental ecosystems or diversity. Uh, I definitely struggle with that. And I think sometimes I just try to focus on a particular aspect of the bigger global problem, um, or what type of solution I am best positioned to try to work towards. And I try to try to stay thinking about that because that's something at a scope that I can manage often actually it's teaching something like coral reef ecosystems Mm -hmm. or I'm about to start teaching global change biology where I zoom out or going to a conference and hearing a lot of different talks about a lot of different things those are moments when you look at everything together when it can really hit you how many challenges we face today Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So, I don't know
1: if that helps, but I'm, but you know, if we quit, then things definitely are not going to go well. So, I am, yeah, I am committed to continuing to try.
0: All right. Last question Are the uh, rainforest coral reefs of the land or, or, coral reefs are the rainforests of the sea
1: i think i think we both know that rainforests are the coral reefs of the land <laughs> that's obvious
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks so much for for talking with me and telling us about your work in morea and, and good luck with the rest of your field season
1: thanks thanks for having me Woo!
0: that's it for this episode to learn more about Dr. Adrian Correa's research on corals and their microbes, check out the Correa Lab website at owlnet.rice.edu slash tilde, that's the little squiggly line, AC53, or you can follow them on social media. For more information about the Gump Research Station in Morea, visit morea.berkeley.edu. This episode of Wild World was produced by Three Wire Creative with support from Lindblad Expeditions and the Rice Alumni Traveling Owls. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to get more information about their trips to the South Pacific and other destinations and to book your cabin for the experience of a lifetime. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world. Next time on Wild World, we're digging deep to uncover a world that seems both alien and yet familiar. We'll meet millions of tiny farmers practicing a form of agriculture that's existed for more than 50 million years. And it's all happening right beneath our
1: feet.